Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I am Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and an educated patient is an empowered patient. And this evening, our episode is entitled, Men Know Thy Prostate. And our guest is none other than Dr. Jonathan Noel. Dr. Jonathan Noel is a graduate of the University of the West Indies Cafil campus and went on to the United Kingdom and trained in urological surgery. Currently, Dr. Noel is in Florida at the Global Robotics Institute training in robotic prostate surgery with Professor Vip Patel. Good evening, Dr. Noel. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can hear you quite clearly. So this evening is all about the prostate. But before we started, I just wanted to lend some insight in terms of what is happening in Barbados as it relates to prostate disease. And recently, um, a study was carried out 
between the CDC and the Caribbean Public Health Agency, which actually stated that Barbados was ranked the fourth highest in the world in terms of males who presented with prostate cancer. That's quite high. And then if we look at what causes death in Barbados, a study was recently done uh, using the international health uh, medical evaluation metric. And what they found was that prostate cancer was rated fourth in terms of those things that cause death in our country with ischemic heart disease being number one, stroke being number two, diabetes being number three, and prostate cancer being number four, accounting for 45% of deaths in Barbados. And so I thought it quite important to discuss prostate pathology. Quite often it is a topic that is shied away from, um, but I actually wanted to start off with, what is the prostate, Dr. Noel? Tell us about that. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks uh, for inviting me. And I do apologize for the audience for being a minute or two late. I hadn't realized the time difference, actually, that we were an hour behind. Um, but, uh, you, you know, I hope you will forgive me. So let's dive right into it. You know, the prostate is a sex accessory gland. Uh, obviously, it is only in men. And it lies deep within the pelvis. Right. Now, your pelvis is is a very tricky area, particularly for surgery, because it is difficult to access and assess. And it hides underneath your bladder, the prostate. Right. It hides right in front of the rectum, which is why when we examine, we have to do a rectal examination. Right. And the urethra, which transmits urine from the bladder outside, it goes right through the middle of the prostate gland. So you can understand that when men present with urinary symptoms, it usually is a reflection of prostate disease that may very well be going on. Okay. With regards to, you know, and I'll just keep talking, but I, I really do, I do want to get some audience interaction here because I don't want it to be, to be too kind of one way. And I'm just checking the charts as well here. So, you know, the prostate gland, walnut size they say and the typical task force in the united states have recommended against screening a few years ago luckily we've reversed that because they saw an increased incidence in advanced prostate cancer presenting so they do recommend and the uk is not in unison all the time that screening does begin screening being a psa which we'll talk about more an examination and essentially risk factor assessment. And with that in hand, I would say in a predominantly black population in the oh, yeah. Caribbean, one should be thinking of screening in the earlier range, ranges from 45 in America, 50 in the United Kingdom, but they always say with a first degree relative, you should go five years earlier. Even so much as 40 years old. So, you know, I think with regards to the prostate, it is a kind of a taboo subject. I find in my, you know, it, throughout the years, the patients who come and obviously present uh, for a screening opportunity, 
do so at the behest of their partner, dragging them through the door. Right. You know, they've either had symptoms and they've suffered silently through that. Whether, you know, they, as, as a man sometimes, you know, we just don't want to admit that something's wrong or that we may be falling ill or we're scared of the repercussions of any treatment on the prostate, whether it be sexual side effects or whether it be incontinence. But the worst thing to do is to ignore it and present an advanced stage. And we know that literature states an issue with regards to presenting late for these kinds of diseases, particularly prostate cancer. But I know the, prim the primary function of the prostate in the normal male is to enrich uh, the, the seminal fluid so that it can carry out its function in assisting with conception of the female oocyte or female egg. So it makes the sperm obviously healthy to withstand the journey towards the, the egg. That's the main function of the prostate. But like any gland, it can get up to mischief and it is, it is a receptor organ for hormones, testosterone and uh, a cousin of testosterone called dihydrotestosterone allow it to grow. And when it grows, it can grow in a benign form or a cancer form. Right. And I think it's important we talk about those two. Uh, Great. I'll pause there for anything that you want to ask, Dr. G. Sure. Uh, before we get into prostate cancer, let's talk about two of the benign conditions that are usually associated with the prostate. The first one is a male who has been experiencing pain um, to the perennial area, um, sometimes pain with ejaculation, um, sometimes pain or urination. But it starts with pain, and they're quite concerned in terms of what should I do? Where should I start? Who should I go to? And certainly some men may even have difficulty ejaculating or have sexual dysfunction, as we call it. Um, tell us a bit about prostatitis, because that can be either acute or certainly turn into chronic like pelvic pain syndrome. So let's talk a bit about that before we go into the other topics of BPH and prostate cancer proper. That's great. That's a great um, way to start. I couldn't have done it better myself, really. I think the, you know, prostatitis is a very difficult condition to manage when it's, uh, you know, chronic and debilitating in terms of its severity. So prostatitis is, to put it simply, an inflammation of the prostate gland. And inflammation in terms of you know, it starts to swell, cause you pain. Inflammation usually is associated with pain. And it can range from a different number of, you know, severity levels from mild, little irritative uh, urinary complaints to a major debilitating pain where patients need high-level analgesias every day just to get through the day. All right. So unlike benign prostate hypertrophy or, or as it used to be enlargement or prostate cancer, both of which are closely related to age, prostatitis can kind of affect men mostly any age after puberty. Okay. So, you know, these, these guys can be young. Right. And 
it is it is one of the most common urinary tract problems we see in men at, in their fourth and fifth decade of life. Right. And certainly from American data, you know, they've had estimations from AUA that almost half the population will at some time suffer from prostatitis in their life. Now, common symptoms of prostatitis, as you alluded to, was a, a pain in the in the perineum, which is that area just between your, your scrotum and the, and the rectum. Okay. Um, that that pain is intense, and that's usually a telltale sign associated with urinary symptoms that prostatitis needs to be considered by your GP or your urologist. You can also see blood in the urine. You can see blood in the, in the semen. Um, and obviously pain with ejaculation can be very debilitating. And in terms of where you start, obviously you see your health professional. You see your GP. And if they feel out of their comfort zone managing it or it's, 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 it's something that requires specialist input, then they'll refer on to the urologist. With regards to the diagnosis, you know, like we always say with, from a medical standpoint, you know, you have to get the answer from the history. So we've alluded to some of the historical points. When you examine the prostate, sorry again, finger in the back passage, but sometimes a patient may jump off of the examination couch by just an examination of the tender inflamed prostate gland. Right. And, you know, catching the diagnosis, it is, it is usually history examination, but taking things like urine samples really kind of pinpoint what the cause is and can, you know, tailor your, your antibiotic treatment to that. Right. I, I wanted to speak very briefly before we take some questions I'm seeing here in the message board. Is the pain always confined to the perineum? Because sometimes patients may present with pain other places. What are some of the other places that we can look out for in terms of the pain actually occurring? You know, it's, it's a very good question because the, the history behind it, you have to have a suspicion. Usually urinary symptoms do accompany it. Mm-hmm. But you have some nerves that run from the lower back down into the into the perineum and the pelvis, which can mm-hmm. be stimulated or co-stimulated, and you can get sometimes pain pain in the lower back, uh, sometimes associated lower kind of joint pains, and they may be saying, "Well, this is new, you know, maybe I'm heavy lifting at work, and it haven't even clinched the diagnosis that it may be something in the pelvis causing mischief as well." So, so just just keep keep in mind about those little. Uh, red flags and, and keep an open mind about that. But usually with re- other joints away from the pelvis or lower back, I would say you've got to think about other things that could be coming awry, you know, whether it's an overall viral picture and right. uh, not just prostate uh, issue. The prostate is just a bystander effect of something else. That's going on. But let's, let's, let's keep it to prostatitis, keeping it simple. And there, you know, the four the four categories are the acute, which is the short phase, and the chronic phase, and uh, they all have different treatment strategies, which your urologist can can help the GP kind of curtail, or the urologist can primarily manage it. Absolutely, thank you. So we have a question here. Well, two actually. After reproductive years, why do we need a prostate? <laughs> so <laughs> it depends what uh, you say is your reproductive years. Right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put any any age on when, you know, a man or a couple may want to conceive. So, if you say, um, you know, not to sound ageist at all, please don't please don't think this is the case. But say a man 
reaches 65 and says he's completed his family. Okay. And he may ask, well, what is the function of my prostate gland now? Well, the function in it lies in the structures around it and what it supports. The function in it is that it holds your nerve bundles to your penis to allow you to have erections. You know, it, it holds it in there. And that's why when you operate to remove it, which will go into, you know, the nerve function to the penis, it can be sacrificed sometimes. Um, but we can go into that later. And continence, keeping yourself dry. So the prostate is intertwined with that bladder muscle fiber that does keep you dry. So once again, removing it, you know, there is a risk of leakage of urine. But I will come to that when it's time to. Um, so it serves a purpose, and I, I wouldn't say that there's any need for prophylactic removal of the prostate gland, such as what was uh, touted with regards to breast cancer and, and certain celebrities having prophylactic mastectomies. I'd right. say uh, pro prostate serves a purpose, and if it's uh, benign and working well, leave it be. All right. We have another question here. What is a good preventative maintenance plan for the prostate? Well, I'd say that in terms of um, maintenance plan, well, let's let's talk about it in terms of what we put into our bodies. Yeah. So yeah. the thing is fluid management. I think that is reflective of bladder and prostate. You know, you've got to just make sure you don't have any fluids that will irritate the bladder and thereby the prostate. So you've got to have, you know, you've got to regulate things like caffeinated beverages, carbonated beverages. If you smoke, cut down on the smoking um, because all these things will cause the blood to just go a bit haywire and it can be misconstrued as an infection sometimes and that may impact and think that you know your prostate is giving trouble when it's a bladder all the time and I tend to kind of think as as you know the lower urinary tract your bladder and prostate I try to work together with them because they, they work together very nicely and I don't like to separate them um with regards to your diet there has been studies that shown that prostate cancer was very low in prevalence in eastern countries china japan and then you know those populations from that ethnicity who moved to westernized countries with their high cholesterol and high salt maybe smoking uh, developed an increased risk of prostate cancer and that goes with any cancer and that goes with heart disease it's what you put into your body so make sure that, you know, I mean, I don't want to step on into your realm, Dr. Grandison, but watch what you put into your body in terms of high cholesterol, exercise, lose weight, because that helps you with your bladder um, control. And these things will, will, be, will be a good overall maintenance program, not really necessarily curtailed to the prostate. There have been some studies, and may, maybe someone's going to maybe preempt and ask me about it with regards to um elements in tomatoes uh you know the certain herbal remedies saw palmento uh, these things have shown some benefit but none that have been studied at in a randomized control fashion to say that they've had any statistical significant benefit and you know with regards to what i recommend i tend to always go with publication and evidence base because the you know old kind of you know, tales of what's good and, and bad is this too many people can can dilute it or contradict it and it creates too much confusion with regards to the patients that I consult with. Um, so I would say keep a general healthy, healthy diet and life. All right. 
right. I wanted to go on to BPH or enlarged prostate, as we may term it. Um, quite often we have heard, once you become an adult, you stop growing, but that's really not the case with the prostate gland. <laughs> tell, us, tell us a bit more about BPH. Well, <clears throat> benign prostatic hyperplasia. Hyperplasia is a medical terminology for increased number of cells and your prostate cells start to, you know, divide and get and get bigger and the prostate capsule only has so much room to accommodate that and when it starts to grow it can really impinge on on your kind of exit pipe or your urethra causing you trouble to pass urine so with regards to you know a, a study that was done in the united states out of out of uh, minnesota uh, they looked at the natural evolution of this um, benign enlarged uh, gland and they found that as men got older in their seventh decade compared to their fourth decade of life, BPH treatment dramatically rose, and so did the associated costs. So it wouldn't surprise me as our medical treatments and surgical treatments are getting better and people are living longer, BPH will become more prevalent. Right. You asked me what causes it. I'll touch on that briefly because I'm aware of the time and I want to encourage, uh, you know, questions and I can answer, uh, hopefully, to the best of my ability. Wh why does it undergo the second growth, as you, as you alluded to? Very good, very right. good question. You know, during puberty, the prostate tends to develop, okay? Develop these new nodules. It's a slow-growing process. Gives you no trouble uh, in your younger years. Um, but then, you know, something happens and the influence of dihydrotestosterone, which is an equivalent of testosterone, just the hormones, it acts on a particular zone of the prostate gland, okay? And that zone, when it enlarges, just crunches on that urethra, that water pipe, and, and squeezes it. And when it squeezes it, man, it's like peeing against a brick wall. You know, patients really kind of have the symptoms of, you know, urgency to go to the toilet, straining and just can't get the bladder emptied at all, at all, at all. Even leaking of urine, particularly going to the toilet a lot at nighttime. I mean, these are signs that you should present to your GP or your urologist with to decipher whether it's a benign or something else going on in terms of right. the prostate pathology. I could talk about treatments, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but, <laughs> you know, the, treat, the treatment. We're, we're, we're doing good on time. We're doing good. Good, good, good. Um, you know, with regards to the treatments, I think the medication has changed the landscape. Once upon a time, it was all surgery, 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 surgery. Now things like Tamsulosin. Um, I don't know if your audience, audience has, has heard of probably the trade name Flomax. As right. It, it, it is intended. It does maximize your flow. And then finasteride is another thing. Now, I mentioned dihydrotestosterone a lot, not to kind of confuse, I hope, your listeners, but just to compliment them with regards to what the nap. Hello? Hello? Essentially stops its production. And, you know, it's a good medication for nasteride. The thing is, it doesn't work overnight. Flomax works overnight. Nasteride takes some months to take effect. Okay, right. so if any of your audience members are on it and they're wondering why Finastra didn't work, maybe some of them have stopped it. That's quite common. 
uh, I would say, please continue on it. Give it six months. Absolutely. Because we tend to see that reduction later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Um, so go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, just to briefly touch on surgery, you know, the most common things are, you know, the camera that goes down the, the water pipe and you just core a channel surgically and then hopefully you'll be passing urine uh, as you did in your younger days. Um, and in regards to the really large glands, sometimes they need a little mid middle midline open cut, okay, on the tummy and they take the prostate out and they leave the catheter in. And the, the main point is to just open up the channel to let you pass urine better. And I want to clarify that catheter that is put in is only temporary until that area heals, correct? Absolutely. absolutely. Right, because a lot of men get very scared when they hear catheter. I don't want to be catheterized though. I don't want to have a tube in. So it's just for the period of healing after that surgery has been performed yeah you gotta you gotta leave it in while it's still raw and healing you know you don't want to be passing urine on your own just let the catheter do its job it should to drain the bladder and it'll be removed as soon as it's safe to okay excellent mm -hmm. so let's talk about that very highly misunderstood topic prostate cancer mm -hmm. um what predisposes a male to prostate cancer let's start there that's a good question so with regards to prostate cancer i give you some statistics uh probably best from the uk because that's where i was you know for the last 10 years or so we see quite a lot of new cases uh cropping up now and that has been the result of the turnbull and fry effect they call it which are these two guys, celebrities, you know, uh, actor, and they got prostate cancer and they were very open with it. They just told the whole world their experience and how they came to, to present with it. And they had no, one of them had no symptoms. And we saw a rapid rise of prostate cancer in the UK right after that. And that just goes to show you that this thing sometimes doesn't present with anything. And it is right. screening that is the, the, the thing that will pick it up in its treatable phase where it hasn't become too aggressive or spread. But essentially, it is the prostate having receptors to androgen, which is your hormone. And it is within our DNA, particularly some you know, racial groups more than others, to develop an aggressive growth of the prostate gland. And these are the bog standard common ones I'm talking about. There's some rare ones that, you know, are, are so rare, less than 1%. I don't think we need to get into that. But with regards to your bog standard carcinoma of the prostate gland, it is usually associated with age as we get older. Because as right. we get older, we know that the, the architecture of the prostate and its receptors will change and things will grow. Um, hereditary, it's within... You know, family history, you'll see that there's genetic associations uh, with regards to people who have had family history of prostate cancer and even breast cancer. So it's important from a historical point of view, you ask the patient standing in front of you, have they had any female blood relatives with breast cancer? All right. Because the gene BRCA, BRCA, has been shown, particularly BRCA2, to be associated with prostate cancer and the mutations therewith. 
Um, dietary, high dietary fats, of course, that will obviously predispose one uh, to prostate cancer. And exogenous estrogen exposures. There was some study uh, probably about a decade ago that looked at that to support that, you know, when the fetus was exposed to estrogen, they had an evidence of it, but I don't think it's, that's been an ongoing or, or associated thing to tout. They say that recent inf infections can 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 again uh, account for it, but I'm going really down the list here now, and I would say that there is no strong association or evidence. Frequent ejaculation, persistently reported, however, to be protective for prostate cancer, uh, with a relative risk of 0.75, so that's quite high. So they say about 21 ejaculations per month from a study by Leitzman, whoever is interested can always uh, ask me, I can send them that paper. Uh, in 2004 showed that it has been protective, but the mechanism uh, could be scientifically explained. <clears throat> Smoking again, no evidence for that, but certainly high fat genetics, which again, we're looking into, and there's some exciting studies on the horizon looking at the genetics, particularly in the black males about what predisposes them to prostate cancer because gene ther therapy, I think, is the future and we'll no longer be relying on our knives and forks as surgeons to treat this. Hopefully we can treat it molecularly. Um, presentation is pretty much, you know, uh, uh, similar to a BPH. You may have urinary symptoms. You may not. So screening and knowing your screening, you know, age and when to present is important. Do I need to go into anything about Gleason score. Maybe you have some audience members who were yeah, we have a we, we we have a question here first. Let's start there. Okay. On finding localized prostate cancer, would you seek to eliminate as soon as possible? Or is there consideration for treatment? Is hormone treatment an option? Really what should we be doing? Yeah, or what should the question. patient be doing? Yeah, fantastic question. So Localized prostate cancer, you know, cancer that's just in the prostate gland, not moved anywhere. Um, you know, all, all options should be on the table for the patient. Now, I always say, you know, what's the Gleason score of the prostate um, cancer that you're talking about? What's the PSA? And when you say localized, you know, we could have different varieties. We could have Gleason 3 plus 3, which is, you know, the, the lowest type of cancer you can have. Or should I say Gleason 6? Let's just call it Gleason 6. You know, PSA less than five, Gleason six, uh, man in his 60s, completed his family. Uh, probably not very interested in, in um, you know, surgery or radiotherapy. Uh, there is a new form of, and I say form of treatment called active surveillance. It doesn't mean you're not doing anything. You are just watching that prostate like a hawk with means of repeat biopsies and scans preferably in the form of an MRI scan, but it depends on, you know, your local kind of resourcing capabilities and your PSA measurements. And we'd be seeing you almost three months, six monthly, yearly, if the prostate has remained, you know, unchanged, Gleason six in five years, nothing's changed, PSA is fine, then, you know, you can say that you spared yourself the, the side effects of treatment. Is hormone treatment an option? Absolutely, hormone treatment is an option. Um, and usually it's a prelude to 
if it's severe enough prostate cancer radiotherapy because that's been shown to add to survival of HGF1 as hormones and then radiotherapy and the hormones can be stopped. During the COVID pandemic earlier this year, we've employed a strategy that we hadn't had to employ for decades now. We started men on hormones while they were waiting to have their operations because the COVID pandemic meant that we had no space to operate. And I'm sure the same was in Barbados with regards to elective plan cases. We were just right. dealing with the, the emergencies. This is during the peak. So we used hormone treatment just to, it just stops the, the, you know, the progression of prostate cancer. Um, but in terms of a long form of treatment, it's, it's not the ultimate thing. It is usually a prelude to something else, surgery or radiotherapy. Okay. Um, I hope I've answered that, that audience member's question. Um, but again, you know, I'll, I'll leave my contact with you, Dr. G, and any other questions after, I'm happy to reply back to them. So, uh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to uh, then touch on other forms of treatment for localized prostate cancer besides active surveillance, which which is difficult, I, I admit, to, to plan in a resource-tracked you know, arena. Even in the UK, some hospitals find it hard to, to do active surveillance because you've got to track patients like nothing. You can't let them fall out the wayside and miss a date to be seen, to be examined, to get the PSA, because then they could progress. And if you lose them and you lose your window, then you've done a disservice, really. Um, so other treatment options would include surgery, removing the prostate gland, okay, and then joining the bladder back to the urethra. And, uh, that is a major operation. Um, but for the most part, patients, um, certainly in minimal invasive surgeries, arms can stay just the night and go home the next day. Usually open surgery, which, which is good. I would never say anything against open surgery. Um, does carry a slightly longer, uh, you know, stay in hospital, a bit more pain, risk of blood transfusion. I suppose it depends on the experience of the surgeon. I know you've got some senior surgeons down there, so I'm sure it's probably low, low risk and good outcomes. Um, and after surgery, I've just seen a question. I'm just going to take that. We'll yeah, sure. Go ahead. From erectile dysfunction, temporary or long term. So with regards to surgery, it depends on the extent of the prostate cancer. Has right. it has it gone through the lining of the prostate, the capsule, or is it almost at risk of going through the capsule? If it is on one side going next to the, the capsule, the lining of the prostate, then you've got to take the nerve and everything with it, you know, to be safe that you've got all the cancer out. You can right. be peeling off that onion layer of nerve tissue. That's, you know, the, you know, the skin and the onion, the external skin, that is what the nerve tissue is. Just a delicate little thing that you're just trying to peel away. And if cancer's risk to be left there, I don't think that's really a, a, a good surgical cancer operation you have to remove the nerve and that side of the prostate however if caught early hopefully enough and you can spare both sides of the nerves then your erection erection should be satisfactory for penetrative intercourse however they won't be the same as they were before the operation that has to be stated and patients have to understand after surgery if it's 10 out of 10 erections you know, you're going to be looking in the best hands probably at 9 out of 10. 
and sometimes that requires medication to get you going. Right. We, we would work with any patients uh, who, you know, with regards to maintaining erections is important. We would work aggressively with them, with medication, with support um, to kind of get them going as well, because the quality of life is, is really important. Okay, I, I wanted to ask, so let's go back a bit, take a backward step, yeah. and then come forward again. Let's talk a bit about the, that screening and explaining the PSA test and the importance of a digital rectal examination. Because yeah, it's something that a lot of men generally shy away from. Doc, I really don't want to have the, the examination where you have to put any fingers or anything inside of me. I'm going to only take the blood test. So let's talk about that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so, you know, with regards to prostate cancer, it is one that what a patient can't pick up, you know, on their own if it is not advanced. Right. You, know, you, you will not sometimes have any symptoms at all. You'll be toting along age 60, you know, maybe, maybe even about your first grandchild and, you know, you think you'd be a fit and healthy and maybe you've got a relative who died of prostate cancer quite young. But you said, well, I'm fine. No need to get screened. Eh, wrong. Let me tell you something now, okay? Because it is imperative to you that you get screened, not only for prostate cancer, blood pressure, check your cholesterol, the usual stuff. I'll just put, put in my little GP hat and say that too. But the screening criteria for a black man with a family history, first degree, whether it's your father, your brother, prostate cancer, I would say you should be coming forward, you know, from age 40, maybe 45, depending on what guidelines you're following. And the prostate blood test, PSA, they call it, stands for prostate specific antigen, is secreted from the prostate. So it's a blood test, it's a blood draw. If it's high, it gives a strong inclination, something may be up. Doesn't mean all the time when it's high that it is prostate cancer. I'm glad that you actually said that. Go it ahead. Is in, it is imperfect. It is an imperfect screening test, but it's the best we have right now because it's cheap, it's widely available worldwide, and it gives you, it points you in the direction to be looking for things cancer or non-cancer related. So the PSA can rise in conditions such as like a benign enlargement which we touched on earlier. It can rise in prostatitis or just a simple urinary tract infection. It can rise if you've had intercourse or ejaculated the night before your blood draw, or if you've had a long haul flight or a long journey, uh, I was saying Barbados, you know, you wouldn't be, be, be driving that long in the car, usually from, from um, my experience anyway. Um, but, you know, certainly if you're, you're visiting friends away and you just traveled over there, you know, hours on the flight and you, you come to get your PSA the day, day after, well, it's going to be high, I can tell you that. Cyclists, any keen cyclists listening, again, that will rise it. Um, and um, it's, important, it's an important part of the screening modality. But we could ask questions, we could take a history, we could do the PSA test, but if you don't put the finger in it, you'll put your foot in it. I can tell you that because if we don't examine the prostate where 70% of the cancers lie, which is just on the posterior, on the back of the prostate, where you can feel with the, the rectal examination, 
which is anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes because it's either going to be obvious right there and then or not that something's gone wrong with the prostate. Um, you know, I don't think you would want to live uh, to regret not having a screening test, not for yourself or your family. Especially, screening. Mm -hmm. especially when you just said that uh, if we catch it early enough, we can provide curative measures. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, catching it early is, is is key, and you know, I think I've seen a question here about so Gleason score. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fine. So, with regards to Gleason score, it's just a scoring system that we use when we analyze the prostate under the microscope, whether it's from a biopsy or whether it's at the time of of surgery uh, for removing a benign prostate. Or even you know for the cancer operation, so the Gleason Gleason system, we've used it since the seventies, and you'll usually hear it in the form of two numbers. It's a grading system for for normal architecture of the prostate gland, so a number of one or two is pretty normal. Number of three is just about to see you know something changing. We call that we do define that as as prostate cancer. Gleason four is just largely irregular, and five well you know you can't make top or tail of what is prostate and what is not. It's the worst kind of cancer. So the first number, if I said you've got a Gleason three plus four, three is you know the the number where the glands are mostly graded as number three and then you got a little touch of four so we can put number four on the on the second scale now right. if it's gleason four plus three that means most of that prostate is the higher grade four with a little touch of three so that's why it's important when people tell me gleason seven i'm like well what is it three plus four or four plus three because it's a different you know treatment paradigm completely oh, okay it's important it's important that you, you know that so um, with regards to Gleason score, it helps us predict which patients fall into risks um, categories. There was a chap called D'Amico of the United States who made a lovely uh, table with regards to risk stratification of prostate cancer. So D'Amico classifications grade prostate cancer into low, intermediate, or high risk. So you know, low risk would be Gleason 3 plus 3 or Gleason 6. Intermediate would be, you know, three plus four. And then high risk are you going upwards, four plus four, you know, four plus five, five plus four. And the treatment modalities, they help us, the, the surgeons, the urologists or the oncologists to determine, well, you know, he's low risk, Gleason three plus three. Then we can offer them active surveillance if the patient wishes that or if they're comfortable with just having it surveyed as opposed to offering surgery for all gleason three plus threes because right. we know that the side effects can be debilitating for some patients right. and their quality of life is affected on a recent study uh, carried out here uh, sorry not here in europe where they said treatment will obviously affect negatively the patient's quality of life, any treatment for prostate cancer, radiotherapy or surgery. So if we can spare you and, and survey you, if it's appropriate, then I would say that's a good strategy to employ. Okay, we have another question here. Great. A friend of mine had pros robotic prostate cancer. What is it 
and why is it better if it is better great question and um you've just touched on a a pet peeve of mine because um i am a, a big proponent of, of robotic surgery with regards to the robot it is like keyhole surgery and i'm sure you would have heard hopefully god is not would have heard of keyhole surgery where they would take the gallbladder out with small tiny incisions or even the appendix out if it's appropriate with small, small tiny incisions so you just put your tiny instruments in and with a camera you look in and do your surgery and usually those patients get the benefit with smaller smaller cuts on the tummy and less bleeding of recovering faster All right. it's the same thing with prostate cancer surgery if i could put five six tiny little incisions on your tummy and do the operation uh you can get get going same day actually you know if it's early enough which we, which is what we're doing here at my institute that i'm working at now you know same day going home imagine that after prostate cancer surgery i don't think you can achieve that with open surgery in this lifetime um but with robotic surgery you know that, that really is probably all I have to say. That's why it's better. The recovery is amazing. It is amazing. Second to none. Um, with regards to the, you know, the sparing of the nerves and getting yourself dry, there was a really good study that was done in Australia where they compared open to robotic to answer that question. And you know what they found? No darn difference between robotic and open which is why the open surgeons, you know, if they've had enough experience and they don't want to learn a new technique, I'd say leave them doing open because they're good at it. They've had the experience. But if you look at the finer detail of that Australian paper, they compared a very senior surgeon who did a lot of open surgery to a younger, new surgeon who only learned robotic. And both of them had the same results. So, you know, a young just graduate surgeon to have the same results as someone who's been 30 years in the business, you know, it goes to show you that robotics gets you there faster, gets you to the better outcomes faster. That's not always, you know, touted when people talk to me about this paper. But this paper doesn't look at the finer things of it. It's that, you know, someone like myself and colleagues, you know, 20 years from now, if, if we're at the same level of someone who's been 30 years in, 20 years from now, where could we be? Hopefully patients, hopefully, please God, patients could have less side effects, maybe 0% side effects. Wouldn't that be amazing? I, I, I wanted to ask, because we have heard of situations where persons have had robotic procedures and had bleeding and then succumbed after the surgery. Is that a general uh, complication that one may have? Or is that complication across the board? That's a really good question uh, <clears throat> because I know that there's probably been something in, in the media recently about robotic surgery and, and someone who succumbed to it. So with regards to robotic surgery causing bleeding, you could probably pull out figures from most high volume units and find that their transfusion rate is probably 10 to maybe 50 times less than open surgery. Right. Meaning that you know, there's much less chance of bleeding. Now, if if this this person who's talked about, you know, one case of bleeding, I would ask who was the surgeon, how many robotic surgeries have they done? Is there are they a unit that's dedicated to doing it? Which country was it done in even? 
because you find that it varies from country to country. Sometimes with enough money, you can buy a robot and just jump on and do it versus some other countries like the United Kingdom where you are very, you know, only put to centers where you do more than 150 a year, meaning right. these complications like bleeding are, are criticized heavily and looked at and really thought of as a never event. So I would say, you know, in my experience of probably three years doing robotic surgery now, I would say I've never had to transfuse anyone and I've seen about 200 cases. But, you know, I never say never in medicine. Right. I never say never in medicine. Things happen, sporadic things that you can't control. And at the end of the day, I hopefully that patient who had a blood transfusion, you know, would, would, would come out on the other end okay, uh, right. cancer-free. But if they succumb to it, Unfortunately, whether it's robot or open, complications can happen. Okay, so we have another question. As minimal as possible. Yes, yes, go ahead, go ahead. We have another question here. Health food stores generally provide various supplements for prostate health. How effective are these supplements? I heard you spoke about the saw palmetto. Um, tell, tell us some more about these supplements. And are they really beneficial? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think with regards to them, <laughs> Again, I'm I'm a very evidence-based person, but I don't want to uh, seem or come across dismissive of alternative remedies because I think they definitely do have a role right. um, in treatment of various um, you know things. But with regards to prostate health, saw palmento is a good alternative to Flomax. It has been shown actually in some studies to be nearing the point of significance. So I would how that saw palmento is a good equivalent to helping the prostate kind of relax to allow you to pass urine better. It has no role in cancer control and neither do any of the alternative therapies, medications, herbal remedies have never been shown to treat prostate cancer as a primary modality. And I think, you know, their roles, the health store, you know, can recommend them and they can be complementary. You know, right. they can be complementary, but in terms of solely taking place of the role of your medical physician, that's where I would object and ask anyone to show me the evidence that would show that they are better than a medical professional's treatment. Right. We have another... That's where I stand with it. Okay, we have another question here. When a man experiences pain from the prostate area but no urination restriction... Does that suggest a prostate issue? Well, it, hmm, the of pain from the prostate, but no urinary restriction. How old is the man? I suppose you know. I think if you're going to be, if you if you're at the age where you should be falling in the screening category, okay, or if you've had recent urinary tract infections, or you know. Even, maybe sexually transmitted infections, these things can, can make one think of prostatitis. And sometimes prostatitis doesn't have to be the debilitating, severe symptom that, uh, you know, can make one think, well, there you go. You know, I've got, I've got something going on with, my, with, with uh, my prostate. But just a little kind of... What we call in barbitis, a tingling pain. Yeah, I, it's worth getting checked out. It definitely is, particularly if you're in the age of being screened, because we may pick up something else as well. Right. And we may get the opportunity to treat you so you don't have that niggling pain. 
And after having a prostatectomy, can it grow back? Well, if it's a prostatectomy for surgery, for cancer, it shouldn't come back because everything should be removed. If it's a prostatectomy for a benign issue, where one particular zone of the prostate is causing the narrowing, we only take out that zone. That's all. So yes, it can grow back. Yes, indeedy. I hope that's clear. Okay, great. You you did touch quite nicely on our screening. You spoke about some of those treatment options. And I, I wanted you at this point in time, because we are now starting to come down into the crunch minutes of our session, and this evening is actually our last session for this season. I wanted to know if there were any take-home points you wanted to share with our audience. I must congratulate our men. I'm seeing lots of men in our chat this evening. And, and I think that this is an excellent opportunity. And I'm, I hope it was beneficial for you. But I wanted to know, Dr. Noel, are there any take-home points that you want to encourage men when should they start to screen what should they be doing how often should they be doing it I, I want to get those those types of tips from you sure so let's let's uh, go to some take-home points like you said I think that's a nice way to, to end um, with regards to your prostate health it starts generally like all organs of your body you exercise, you maintain a healthy diet, you watch what you drink, and that's not only caffeine and carbonated, that's alcohol as well. Um, you should hopefully optimize the health of all your organs, including your prostate. It's got to be said that prostate issues that are, are a large growth usually present with symptoms. So you feel like you're passing urine against a blockage. You're just not happy with it. Don't suffer in silence because that can impact on your kidney health if it's very severe. Present to your general practitioner, present to your urologist. There's medication out there. If medication fails, there's surgical options out there as well. So don't suffer in silence. With regards to prostate inflammation or infection, again, don't suffer in silence. Get it treated. Maybe a urinary tract infection, or maybe something that we need to, you know, uh, prescribe special medication for that relates to the nerves. That can be very debilitating prostatitis. So again, don't suffer in silence. Telltale signs are urinary symptoms, but sometimes even lower back pain or just the niggling pain, as we said, can sometimes be the thing that that brings you to a urologist. With regards to prostate cancer, I know it is controversial i know it is usually associated if you do elect to have surgery or radiotherapy with debilitating side effects but to suffer in silence and then present when it is too far gone or too late with minimal treatment options isn't anything that you would want to live to see you wouldn't want to put yourself or your families through that so present for screening, ask the question, talk to people who may have gone down that road already. That's really important. And the screening can be a blood test, consultation with your doctor, a quick finger exam. And if you shy away from that, believe me, if it's too far advanced, you wish you had suffered for 30 seconds. And with regards to the treatment options, 
open surgery for prostate cancer is just as good as robotic surgery. Robotic surgery obviously has risks, um, benefits, sorry, of getting you home faster. And you can obviously consult on me more with that uh, with Dr. Grandison um, in the future if you want more information on that. But, you know, I, I, I would leave an open door policy, uh, Dr. G. Uh, please pass on any questions that, or any, any kind of, you know, comments that the audience have. I'd be happy to get some feedback. Absolutely, because I think this is a, a brilliant opportunity for our male listeners and our female listeners, because sometimes, as you correctly said at the very beginning, sometimes it is the female partner or, or the partner on a whole that mm -hmm. essentially... Um, encourages that man to get screened and or tested that encourages them to take the next step and, and so I want to say thank you very very much for coming out this evening Dr. Noel I know there's a time difference I know that you're extremely busy um, but once again thank you so much for joining us this evening and thanks to our listeners who have not who have participated this evening in the uh, message blog. And I want to say that I want to encourage you to follow us on both Podbean and Anchor. Unfortunately, we, you won't be joining us next week because we're taking our Christmas break and this is the end of season one. But join us in the new year once again with First Aid Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. Good evening and thank you so much, Dr. Noel. Thank you for having me. Take care.